Hello, this is Evan, one of the hosts of the Joker Men podcast. I just wanted to throw in this uh, quick warning because this episode was recorded in a public place in, in a park, actually, using unfamiliar equipment, and it uh, sounds like shit. The first part of it does, anyway. Uh, after about 20 minutes, it uh, really clears up, it becomes uh, beautiful uh, it, it, in an atmospheric kind of way. Uh, but the first part sounds uh, bad. Enjoy. Welcome to Jokerman uh, Alfresco, Jokerman Under the Stars. Uh, this is actually a rebirth, a sort of a very first episode of the podcast in some ways, because uh, this is the first time that Ian and I, Evan, uh, Ian and Evan, we are actually in each other's company, in, in literal presence in space. In person. Uh, and uh, that's the first, right? In yeah. person. Um, and I've, I've returned to Brooklyn, and uh, now we're uh, recording a podcast in the park in public. <laughs> and there's there's people. One of the uh, one of the coolest things you could possibly do: uh, hang out in the park and record a podcast. It's it's really lucky that uh, there's a, a a reason for people to be far apart from each other during this time, um, because nobody can tell that that's exactly. What we're doing. Yes. Um, but uh, we're not that far apart from other people because uh, we can very loudly hear people doing uh, literal karaoke pretty loud, really nearby in the park. Yeah, so we are, uh, we're certainly not the coolest people in the park, but we're also not the least cool people because we are not these people several pieces, paces away from us doing karaoke that uh, appears to be a really kind of odd selection of songs so far. It's, we've it's, got Black it's, Hole Sun. It's idiosyncratic. We've got Black Hole Sun, we've got Owner of a Lonely Heart, right. and uh, we've got Rock the Casbah. Rock the Casbah, right. So, so just a... a I'm guessing we'll have like some Weezer coming up shortly. That seems uh, like like something that would pop up. Maybe uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Something else has just started, but I can't really hear it because I've got the headphones on. Do you? Can you tell? I can't tell yet what, what they're saying. But anyway, we're, we're talking about uh, an album of, of different music uh, today. We're talking about not, uh, we're not talking about Black Hole Sun. We're, we're talking about the 1976 record by Bob Dylan, Desire, uh, a record that is uh, uh, pretty good. Uh, it's firmly in the mid-career, uh, as is our want, our, our whole raison d'etre, as, as you could say, is our... Is to, to cover these middle of the 
middle middle life mid, mid midlife records by Bob, mm-hmm. and uh, this is his seventeen, right? I believe I think that's that's the number that's sticking in my head. At Something least. like that. If it isn't, it's somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, definitely, decidedly in the not the wilderness portion of his career necessarily. We haven't hit that that era quite yet, but uh, we're we're in the. We're decidedly in the less less well-known section. Although I believe Zyre actually was a pretty big hit um, charts-wise when it came out initially. Right, right. It was one of the first times he was actually like on the charts, really in an appreciable way, as far as I understand it. Yeah. Um, which is a surprise, uh, and uh, and yet it, it seems that this record really slots. In oh, it's no doubt. I'm sorry to. Yeah, singing, it's no doubt. Uh, This record is um, one that I think it's really of its time in a weird way. Like it, it, it's cool for '76, for '75. Like they've got he's Bob really seemed to not have much of a uh, idea going into this album, except that he wanted it to be like kind of cool guy, like uh, gypsy uh, rock. and uh, that's what you get with that classic gypsy uh, violin, uh, which is all over the thing, um, and uh, some, some pretty good songs. Yeah, I, uh, I I am actually pretty pretty fond of the record myself, and I must say uh, it is it has grown in my appreciation due to this uh, this this return to it. It's not something that I've appreciated too much in the past, I would say. But um, you know, it's not, it's not one of the tip-top favorites that I have returned to again and again. Hurricane has always been a favorite, obviously, but that's the same for everyone. Uh, but g- going back to it this time, I think I don't know. There, there's just something, something else here that I, I hadn't uncovered previously, and uh, and it really is uh, striking a chord with me. Um, and uh, and you know, that's that's kind of the, the purpose of this whole project is just getting getting a good excuse to listen to some of these less appreciated Bob tracks. Um, and, and records. Um, you don't think that uh, Mozambique is one of the most <laughs> appreciated and important songs? Mozambique. We, we were talking a while back about which uh, which Bob Dylan record would be his um, equi- the equivalent of his Super Mario Sunshine, uh, the uh, the mm. Super Mario mm-hmm. uh, Nintendo uh, video game series, right? Video entertainment, different medium. But uh, some of the same ideas are, are being thought, are happening here. I think we landed on the on the notion that this was uh, Bob's Super Mario Sunshine. Uh, fans of uh, Italian culture know that Super Mario Sunshine is is the one where uh, where Mario kind of visits a uh, tropical a tropi- island, a, a sort of sort of like the French Riviera mm-hmm. type of island. Sure. Like a, it, he's on vacation and has to solve uh, the problem of pollution, uh, sort of. There's right. A, He's got his, like, uh, cleaning jetpack. Flood, right. which is an acronym, I think, for something, which is a little jetpack with a with a voice, and, or with a, a has characteristics. Anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic, uh, that's word. right. Um, uh, water cleaning device. Anyway, uh, the song Mozambique on this album is kind of like the... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, um, I, I think we can we can all assume that Shigeru Miyamoto, uh, director of the Mario series, uh, was in fact slightly referencing Bob Dylan track Mozambique by uh, crafting the Super Mario Sun- Sunshine uh, conceit with that with that game. Yeah, I feel like uh, 
Mario is the way that like um, academics talk about uh, yeah. talk about the Italian plumber. I, I used to call him Mario, but then once I got into grad school, I had to start calling him Mario. Mario. Well, so. it's, it's what, one of the things you, they teach you. Or you learn very quickly. You go, it's it's one of the things in I cover. Academia in academia is that you, you're not going to. It's not Mario. It's Mario. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things they cover in orientation. No uh, no sexual relations with students, and it's it's uh, it's Mario, not Mario. But just uh, uh, as you said, this was a record that you didn't like jump to uh, throughout your personal history. It's not like one that you were always trying to hear. It's on heavy rotation. But um, you've, you've grown to feel a little bit more fondly towards it. Mm-hmm. I, I feel the same way, uh, sort of. I think that it has um, some things in it that are really uh, sort of special. It's definitely a unique record in that when you say the desire sound, people know what you're talking about. People being people freaks like us. Right, exactly. People who would uh, sit in a park on a sunny Sunday evening and record a podcast while people sing no doubt karaoke several steps away yeah it's a it's a very unique sound um, in his in his canon uh, sort of a fusion I think of a couple different eras in his uh, discography that, that came earlier and then some newer elements as well um, and it's not something that he really pursued much further uh, because I mean the record kind of as I understand it you might know a little bit better since you've, you're the scholar with the big long book about all the recording sessions but as I understand it uh, a lot of the record recording was done just kind of as a sort of a warm up process for the, the Rolling Thunder group um, like in the summer of 75 before they went out on tour in the fall um, a couple months later and so he was, he was kind of using the sessions as like a as a way to get to know the band and get everyone together uh, and there were definitely some abortive initial sessions where he had from what I read like 20 something people in the studio and there were some personal songs and he had a hard time singing them in front of everyone and it was just kind of a mess and no one was in charge of anything uh, and then ultimately he cut it down a little bit into a, a smaller group and um, and that group I think formed the core of the Rolling Thunder gang that went out on the road with it a couple right. months later so uh, the uh, yes the original sessions uh, for this record were pretty disastrous. From what I've read, there was uh, basically like, up to six guitarists and just a ridiculous amount of, of players and instruments going at once. Um, no real producer, as is Bob's um, preferred method. It was really a sort of uh, harsh introduction to a lot of these players of the, the Bob Dylan style of recording, which is to... Do um, literally no preparation and just get them no, get them in a room and make them go. Yeah, which I, I find at, over the, these episodes, I've found to be just kind of something that is charming and interesting to just keep reading about. How like Bob's approach to music is very—he's like a total luddite when it comes to recording. It's like, well, you take people and you put them in the room, and then whatever happens is sort of like uh, up to literally just up to chance whatever like God whatever's in the song is in the song and and you know Bob is famously extremely quick to bore like when, when things aren't going smoothly it's, there's too many takes for the type of thing where no stop but it's just, uh, I'm done right, right. now um, there's a great story uh, that I, I, an anecdote I read that was um, 
so like one, one of the drummers during one of these sessions was, was kind of just asking Bob well what's the deal are we are we ending the song with a fade out or are we going to do a, uh, a, a def- definite ending um, and Bob went on some kind of lengthy diatribe that was so long and so confusing that everyone was totally bewildered had no idea what he was talking about and it ended with Bob just saying we're not never we're not going to play the song and then uh, the more experienced uh, musician once somebody's worked with Bob more often just talked to the drummer and was like listen never ask him <laughs> just play that's that's our Bob I was I was talking to my dad a little bit after uh, after our Blood on the Tracks episodes came out. He uh, he listened and had quite a bit of feedback. Oh boy! Uh, no way! No, it's it's fine. It's, he just he just likes to have feedback about everything. I'm glad um, somebody's listening. Yeah, but uh, he I, somehow we, we got on the topic of like Bob versus uh, Springsteen because uh, my dad's also a big Spring, Springsteen guy, and uh, you know the, the sort of like the the contrast between the two's recording styles. Uh, it came up and became part of the conversation where Springsteen is, is much more like a studio perfectionist, uh, you know, very, very uh, concerned about the exact, you know, tone on, on the guitar on a particular solo or something, uh, and, and all the overdubs have to be perfect, it's got to be mixed just right, and yeah, Bob is, Bob is the exact opposite, uh, it's just, it's literally just like, you know, kind of, uh, let's record it all in one take, if we can get it all together, we're good, and, uh, you can actually hear that on some of these songs on this record in particular. There's like vocal flubs um, and like some timing, some fuck ups and stuff. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I find it. I find it. Char- there's something charming about it and, and real and, and warm. Um, and um, I, it, it wouldn't work necessarily, I think, for a less uh, interesting musician uh, or, or writer, certainly, where some of the value of the music comes from literally like the fidelity of it but in Bob's case like as long as it's good enough for me I think like it's it, uh, it just has to be good enough and then and then all the interest for me comes from uh, you know whatever whatever seems through well it, in a way it does direct you as a listener toward the the content more so than the uh, the the overall effect of the, the synthesis of the music and the tonality and everything because right. you know that's kind of an interesting to consider in, in terms of Bob versus Bruce like Bruce does represent uh, the what we now think of as like the contemporary uh, rock ideal in, in a lot of ways right. in regard to that recording style approach like now pop music for example I mean, especially is it's almost so uh, insanely micromanaged and manicured that it it, it feels totally bereft of air and it can feel totally lifeless. Bob sometimes uh, has the total opposite problem where um, maybe coming from the folk tradition and from really coming up when rock music wasn't even like uh, codified and was not nearly as codified and, and sort of um, uh, settled a form as, as it would later become. Yeah. He's got this uh, approach that's kind of like just uh, 
kind of temperamental. It's ba- literally based on like how he feels that day, yeah. how a certain drum part feels. Like could just change his mood, and uh, he could just decide like this isn't working. Um, not to say there aren't other artists throughout rock history that end up being like that, but Bob's someone who has over time keeps ending up in these situations, as we'll see throughout the rest of the episodes, where somebody asks, who's the producer on this, and there's no answer. Right. There's just uh, whoever's in the room. The uh, the lore is the producer. Uh, and I, I think that some of the results, like in the 80s, are like instructive about this, that, that kind of approach, right? Like... Bob, obviously, post-Infidels, I would say, uh, you know, starting maybe with Infidels is one of the more notorious uh, examples, but certainly post-Infidels starts to focus more heavily on studio musicianship and uh, sounding kind of cutting edge uh, and of the moment. And, and a lot of those recordings, certainly by the time we get into Empire Burlesque or Down the Room, are not particularly fondly <laughs> looked on. Well, of well interestingly, I, I think that those records kind of suffer... In a, it's, a, it's interesting because they suffer from the problem, uh, if you can call it a problem, of, of Bob being sort of uninvolved in the studio process. Right. In a, but in a totally different way. Whereas, like, for a record like this, perhaps you could say, like, the, the issues with it, if you're nitpicking, are uh, because of a sort of lack of cohesion, like, too, lack of focus. Um, in Empire Burlesque, for example, the issues kind of come into play because because that lack of focus creates a vacuum where other studio hotshots come in and are able to decide this needs a gated this drum needs to be gated or like this uh, we should just try these synths on there and Bob still cavalier as ever just goes okay uh, but Back to the present day, 1976. Yes, yes. Uh, we uh, we have this record, which uh, has uh, if if those prob- those problems materialize, if you want to call them problems, uh, in, in it being kind of off key or like things that being a little bit ramshackle. But um, I suppose we should just jump into the. I wish that I hate podcasting jargon. Jump into dive into. We need to figure out some. We've, we've finished the, the initial introductory banter section. Now we'll segue into the uh, first portion of the record, Side A's discussion, and eventually we'll segue into Side B's discussion. Right. Cue the uh, transition from So we'll talk about the first track on the record, uh, which is probably the most well-known song of Desire. I, I, I would venture to guess. Uh, Mozambique? <laughs> we're, not, we're not there quite yet. No, uh, talking about... Hurricane. Hurricane, of course. Uh, the eight and a half minute long, I think, um, uh, story song that, that uh, introduces us in this whole new sonic world that Bob has swept this into a, like a year after um, um, Blood on the Tracks, I believe. I think this record was at January 76. Blood on the Tracks was January 75. Cool. 
gonna be dumb. It's gonna be dumb. There's people just doing. Uh, Is this fake Hill? That don't impress me. I don't remember. Shania Twain. One of those great women of song and stage. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so Hurricane, Bob Dylan's eight-and-a-half-minute song about a wrongly-tried boxer uh, who was framed for murder by the New Jersey police. Yes, uh, it takes place in Patterson, New Jersey, um, which is uh, a, a very interesting place. Uh, you have um, a lot of interesting cultural history in Patterson. Do you? Yes, yes, you do. There's that whole movie, Patterson. About uh, about a man who doesn't have an iPhone. Oh, is that the movie? Is that the one with uh, Adam Driver? Yeah, it is. It's pretty, it's pretty good. It's and like that's set in Patterson, New Jersey. It is. I and thought his name was Patterson. Well, it's, you're right on both counts. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, and also, it, it touches on the fact that Patterson has a storied cultural history. Um, famously, the poet William Carlos Williams uh, was from Patterson and has an opponent. Uh, well, I guess it, it, he has a poem called Patterson, an epic poem. And uh, anyway, this this song takes place in Patterson. Uh, Hurricane. Uh, Reuben Carter. Reuben Carter. Uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter is uh, the, the middleweight champ. Uh, or the contender for the. Yeah. Well, there's some uh, there's some, uh, some questions about where exactly he was and how Bob represented him in his lyrics. There were. Concerns that Bob made him out to be a uh, somewhat better boxer than he was in reality, uh, according to the rankings. I'm not I mean, concerned about that. I feel like anybody who's going to make critique. if someone's going to make that into their the hill they they're going to die on, I, I I feel for them because they're uh, I feel for their family really because that sounds like an, an insufferable person. Um, the, actually, this song is actually not about a great boxer. Apparently, he was only ranked ninth at the time. He wasn't, in fact, a, a, a champion contender well, as, as Bob represented. We can surmise that it was Bob, he's Bob's favorite boxer. Bob is a boxing lead. He's, he's, a, he's personally involved in the sport of boxing. Is he? Yeah, he boxes. He, uh, he boxes at, uh, at, as far as I know, he still does at the boxing gym in uh, Santa Monica. And uh, he's been interested in boxing as a... Uh, extracurricular activity. That's funny. That's funny. Many years. But I, I don't know if he was into it uh, at this point or if he just admired it. Um, but he should clearly admires Ruben Carter. The story is, uh, I mean, just listen to the song because that's the story. Yes. Uh, it tells you the story. But he was wrongly tried of murder, wrongly, wrongly accused of murder, falsely tried, as the song says. And, um, yeah, the tragedy, and uh, it's, it's important to note that uh, Ruben Carter was a black man, and uh, the song uh, makes that very clear that uh, in Patterson, that's just the way things go. It's just the way things go. But uh, when he says in Patterson, that's the way things go, he could just be talking about, he could be talking about any American city, uh, really, and nothing's changed, and uh, the way things go is that the, the law and uh, the heat will always be... Uh, against uh, the black man in, in, in a situation like this where somebody's uh, been accused of a heinous crime. That's true. And the facts are that uh, white men were the ones who killed the bartender and uh, someone else, someone else. Um, the song, uh, yeah, speaks uh, very well, I think, obviously, to our present cultural moment, uh, not to be too, uh, you know, uh, searching for connections where they may or may not 
be, but uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's absolutely Bob laying out the exact problem that has engulfed our nation over the last several months, that uh, uh, people of colored black people in particular um, are going to always be hassled uh, much more so uh, by the police than are, uh, than are the whites. Um, did Reuben Carter ever get out of prison? He did, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 80-something, 80, 80 I think, a couple of years after this song, um, he, was, he, he was convicted initially, then uh, granted a retrial, convicted again. Uh, both, both times uh, uh, were, both trials were uh, uh, accused of being you know, kind of discriminatory and, and um, uh, worked against him by the, the DA in the police office. Kangaroo Court. Kangaroo Court, absolutely. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a standout track and uh, really kind of... It, Stand out track in the truth. I think it really takes down out in his whole discography. It's like really, with its length, it, it, it I think it takes a certain special place um, as the one of the great uh, sort of social justice epics of this yeah, it's it's a lengthy story song, which obviously you know he is he is indebted practiced. to Billy Joel for, for who invented that. Yes, of course, yeah, uh, the piano man himself. Um, but uh, whereas on the previous record, um, what on the tracks we might get something like Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, which is some sort of like fable or moral, but doesn't have a clear kind of politics behind it of any sort. And no real people. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, well, there's Big Jim. Um, uh, you know, this this is uh, this is uh, a story song with with a clear, like you know, firm beating heart. I think, um, and uh, and so it, it for me at least it's it's a more impactful and, and kind of significant um, and emotionally resonant song. Uh, it introduces right off the bat one of the defining elements of the desire sonic atmosphere, right, which is Scarlet uh, Rivera. Rivera's violin. Yes, the gypsy violin, uh, as it's sort of been. Uh, Understood the sort of the term that seems to have stuck with that uh, sound. Uh, she brings something uh, really special to it. It, it. I don't think this song would be as memorable uh, without that. Uh, it hits right at the beginning. This uh, sort of very dy- very dynamic uh, playing, uh, yes. which has uh, a lot to offer. Kind of um, earthy. Uh, uh, it's, it's like a different style of folk music musicianship um, that is unique to this record, but still has uh, two feet firmly in, in a folk music tradition of those sort. Although kind of a world by having this. get some more explicitly world music touchstones in a couple later songs. Ne- next song is called Isis. Uh, sure is. This is where we should bring up that Bob Dylan uh, introduced uh, another talent, another song lyric writing talent on, on this record. Um, 
someone, a household name, really, mm-hmm. uh, Jacques Levy. Yes, we're all very familiar with the great, inimitable Jacques Levy. You uh, can't imitate him. That's no. what that inimitable means. Exactly. Nobody, inimitable. nobody, you try to do Jacques Levy, every people try to do Jacques Levy, and they fall flat on their face. <laughs> As far as I can tell, Jacques Levy basically just wrote Desire with Dylan and after having written a couple songs with Roger McGuinn from The Birds. Um, and I think that was about the extent of his, his career as a songwriter. Um, he was a psychologist, like a licensed psychologist or psychotherapist or something. And he was also a, a stage director, like a, like a theater director, Broadway and off-Broadway. And then ended up as an English professor at some sort of university for the last several decades of his life and then died in 2004 or something but yeah just sort of a random guy that bob decided like hey i'm gonna write this entire record with yeah they sort of bumped into each other a couple times in uh the village uh in in uh, new york in the west village at uh the uh, one of the bars uh, other something the other side other side that's right uh which is funny you know another side yeah. Bob Dylan. Yeah. I like to think that Bob uh, met him and was like, didn't you help uh, that band that famously covered uh, Tambourine Man? Um, and, and he said, that's me. I, I wrote for them, for the birds. And uh, so, you know, those classic uh, Jacques Levy fingerprints are all over uh, Desire. Um but what do we mean? We mean that uh, he uh, sort of wrote some of the, song, the lyrics on, on ISIS. Yes, yeah, he wrote... Uh, I mean, they have co-writing credits on everything on this record except for two songs, uh, One More Cup of Coffee and then the very last song, which might be the most striking and stirring song on the entire record, which we'll get to in time. Sarah, yeah, a song yes. about, about Dylan's wife, which would have uh, been pretty weird to be like, I can someone help me write Shared this? Shared a co-writing credit on this, yeah. Had had Bob, I, you might know better than I, had, had Bob, like, had a whole lot of experience, like, with co-writing? No, I don't think so. Right? And the, I think the closest thing that we uh, have encountered so far to something like this is his experience on New Morning with uh, Archibald McLeish, where some of those songs came about as a sort of aborted collaboration, collaboration with uh, that uh, talent. Right. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, not that I know of. Yeah, no, I, I, I had never, uh, or have not been aware of him sharing many co-writing credits up until this point. Obviously, we're aware of his proclivity for sort of taking traditional songs and putting his name to them. Which is co-writing after a fashion. <laughs> sure. Uh, but it is. it does beg the question of, like, why? Why would... Why did Bob feel the need... Bob Dylan feel the need to uh, write with anyone else? Uh... I, I think that maybe uh, it's, it's just something interesting to sort of ponder. Is yeah. Like where was Bob uh, creatively at this point that he even felt that that... Like, Bob Dylan doesn't strike me as someone who would uh, welcome such a thing. Right. But, um... And, like, certainly, like, all the time with the band, for instance, like, obviously, uh, uh, Livon Helm and, and company were capable of writing their own songs, as we saw on all of the records the band actually put out, but Bob never shared co-writing credits with them on anything. Like, they just... Bob wrote Bob songs, and they played behind him, and that was it. Like, there was... There was an, even as collaborative as they got, they were always under his name exclusively. Right, and, and I don't think that Bob had, uh... 
it, it doesn't seem like he was super interested in sharing creative uh, as much as the the experience with the, the band during the basement tapes seemed to be sort of off the cuff it's possible that you could call those some of them co-writing uh, experiments uh, who knows if, if who in the studio had maybe an idea here or there right uh, it wasn't official but um, if there's anything we've learned so far it's that Bob uh, it's always someone who's uh, going to surprise you with his uh, impulsive, impulsive decisions yeah. um, but do you think it paid off on, on ISIS? Or uh, can you even tell? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I, there, there obviously is, like, a very distinct, like, desire quality to ISIS, as there is for most of the other songs on this record. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of these songs are very long, uh, very dense, don't have choruses. Uh, they're not... It, it's not that they're not catchy, necessarily, but they just are... You know, they're, they're more, like, short stories set to music, for the most part. Uh, and ISIS is definitely a, a clear example of that kind of song following right on the heels of Hurricane. Um, I don't know. I, 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 on the record, the, the version, uh, the, you know, the recorded LP version of the song is a little plotting to me. I think it's an interesting song, and, and the story is, is definitely interesting to listen to. But it's not it's not a terribly compelling cut, uh, just in terms of like a piece of musicianship. Yeah, same. I, I I do think that this song kind of feels like if you made a whole song out of the the stuff of um, Tangled Up in Blue where he's talking about the narrator is like I was working in the Great North Woods right, right. or whatever uh, things like that like this song is full of kind of these uh, adventures that like a sort of archetypal novelistic sort of hero would would, would end up in these uh, it does have a sort of literary quality to it um, in the sense of it being like a short story, like you said. Yeah, the story, I mean, the story, like, the literally the arc of the story, as far as there is one, appears to be, you know, the, the narrator marries Isis, uh, the title character, not the Islamic State, uh, but a beautiful, uh, a beautiful woman. Um, and, uh, but then can't be with her for whatever reason, and then rides off to seek some sort of fortune, and falls in with a treasure hunter, uh, who takes him to some sort of pyramid trapped in ice, and they break into a tomb, and the treasure hunter friend ends up falling ill and dying, and uh, and our narrator flees and, and returns back to Isis uh, herself and decides at the end of the story to stay uh, if she wants him to. Yes. Um, and uh, a, a lot of people, I think, see this as sort of an allegory for Dylan's relationship with Sarah um, uh, in, in that, you know, he had something great and good uh, in her initially, and then for... Is, is it... The past tense of forsake, forsook. Yes, forsook. Yeah, forsook. He forsook her. There's a there's a fancy word for you. And um, you know, went off on his own, uh, doing his own thing. And they were doing their separation during uh, during um, blood on the tracks. And he fell in with his Columbia Records employee gal, uh, and then ends up going back to her and reconciling. Oh, I see. So you could time. you could read this song as like searching for something better than what you already have. After he's married, uh, he's married Isis, or uh, Sarah, and then thinks, oh, per- but perhaps there's some greater prize, and finding out that it is, it is a, a doomed uh, prospect to do such a thing, and it's better to uh, not go to a, a, a ice pyramid. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you break in, you break into the tomb, and then there's, uh, there's nothing there. 
uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, everything you've been searching for has been a lie all along. Maybe the real, uh, was the, uh, along the way. Along the way, right, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with that joke format. Um, I would say um, that the... So even even though, like, the song itself, the, the recorded cut is a little kind of dreary to me, um, the, uh, the, live, the live version from the Rolling Thunder um, uh, concert, uh, you know, or tour that he undertook right after this record... Uh, is an absolute ripper and a killer, and it fucking rocks. That's great. I mean, yeah, this this, this uh, it's a great uh, starting point, and I mean, the song's not bad by any means. It's pretty good. Yeah, but, yeah, you could definitely, as we as we'll see, you could do more with it, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyone uh, who saw the great uh, the great Marty Scorsese. Uh, his his documentary about the Rolling Thunder tour last last year should be familiar with uh, the live version of ISIS. Uh, Bob, wh- whatever the one was, I, I don't know what night and what city that uh, that particular cut was from, but whichever one he had the film from, Bob's up there in his uh, white face makeup with just like the absolute biggest cocaine eyes you've ever seen, and just like tearing through this song like it's a fucking like television song or something. It sounds like a punk rock band. Um, but uh, yeah, on the record, it's you know it is it is what it is. Interestingly, on that note, I guess we won't spend too much time talking about Rolling Thunder since uh, we're going to talk about Hard Rain after this, and that is a sort of a lacking uh, document of the Rolling Thunder tour. Um, but a lot of these songs have have hardly been played by Bob at all throughout his career. Um, we're recording this outdoors, so I don't have BobDylan.com in front of me, but I did. You have it in your heart. I have, well, I have it in my heart, and I have it in my notebook oh, as well. Oh, yeah, you have it in ri- written in longhand on, on a real paper notebook. On we're a not, piece of paper. We're not even talking. We're, this is like a real outdoorsman's old-fashioned way of, of doing This that. is how they used to podcast in the old west. That's right. That's what I mean. Um, yeah, Isis, uh, along with Hurricane, and along with many other songs, were literally only ever played uh, live during the Rolling Thunder sets, uh, 75 to 76. Isis has been played 46 times from October 75 to May 76. Uh, Hurricane uh, from October 75 to January 76, and that's the, the case for most of these songs, which, uh, I don't know, I, I, I wonder why I wonder why that is, why, why these songs in particular Bob was like so into, and like really, they, they had such a vibrant onstage life during the Rolling Thunder. It probably has nothing to do with his divorce. <laughs> Uh, imminent as it was, it's possible. It's prob- no, no, no. It's not possible. Oh, it's not. Excuse me. It's not. It, it's possible. not possible yes, that that has any influence on what was happening. Um, you know, it's so cool that you have this. Uh, it's like you have BobDylan.com in front of you, but we don't even have a computer. In a way, the the notebook is sort of like the the computer that we're using. It's kind of uh, just sort of interesting to think about. It is. <laughs> That is that is a good point, Evan. I never thought of it that way. The notebook is the computer. Yeah. They do call laptops notebooks sometimes, also. Yeah, I wonder why that. Is. That must be why. I you think, know. You know. There you go. Maybe there's some uh, some sort of history there. Well, the next song is one that you've been very anxious to talk about. Uh, so I'm going to let you just uh, you know take the next ten minutes or so and uh, give us <laughs> give us your thoughts on Mozambique. So Mozambique is a song that's about Mozambique, and uh, <laughs> yeah. it, that's a place. 
Um, it's actually in Africa, mm-hmm. the dark continent. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's uh, just uh, that's an outdated term that um, was used by uh, colonizers and people with no soul. Yes. Um, the uh, th- this song, on the other hand, is a celebration of the beauty, the life, the uh, exuberant uh, experience of. of being in Mozambique, seeing the lovely people of Mozambique, yes. taking one final peek at Mozambique, um, thinking about the, the sand and the sea. Uh, this is a, a song that's full of uh, energy, and um, in the book that I have uh, about the the recording sessions, the writer of that book, uh, Clinton Halen, describes it uh, as ghastly. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious, because I think it's great. Uh, I actually really like this song and its its peculiar rhythmic uh, s- sort of structure. Um, there's some great line deliveries in it, just like of all the lovely people, It's great. Yeah, yeah. It. <laughs> It's definitely sort of uh, atypical of the desire sound, I would say. It's it's a it's a short song. It's like three minutes long or something, and it's a very jaunty kind of happy uh, sound, and also jaunty happy kind of lyric. Uh, he's going to Mozambique to to fall in love with you, um, and uh, it's it's coming on the heels of Hurricane and ISIS, which are both these very dense, like sprawling politically charged or like personally biographic songs or autobiographical songs uh, this is just like it, it, it almost sounds like a song that it comes from another record that was well, like written uh, by someone I'm, else I'm sorry uh, ISIS is not autobiographical no, at all right, right, it has right, nothing right. to do with him excuse me but uh, this song perhaps does I don't know if he went to Mozambique it'd be funny if he didn't because uh, the song seems to be a song you could only write if you Went there and had a great time. You would think. Interestingly, uh, according to our second most used source, the old the old folks at Wikipedia. No, no, we don't look at that. You're talking about the old folks at uh, uh, ancient texts and tomes. We're, we're talking about yeah. uh, dust-covered, leather-bound books. Right. Yes. Uh, um, all the words. Uh, I can't, I can't even remember the, the lyric from Tangled Up Blue. Whatever. Um, they glowed like burning coal. Yeah. Right. Uh, like they were written in your soul from media. Um, apparently, according to someone who... Sources. Wrote, sources. Exactly. Yeah. Name sources. Uh, the song, the lyric was begun on a lark uh, where Bob just challenged himself to figure out as many words as he could rhyme with the word Mozambique. Oh, God. So do you think it's possible he didn't go to Mozambique? I would say he probably hadn't gone to Mozambique, uh. especially considering... Uh, 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 at this time, you know, he, he, he was recording this in the summer of 75. Mozambique, just several months earlier, had won its independence from the colonizing uh, state of Portugal in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in Africa. Portugal. Portugal. Uh, and, um, and so there was a big uh, kind of political struggle that had just been taking place in Mozambique Ma- immediately prior to this song. Blood in the streets. Yes. And, blood, uh, blood literally on the tracks. But this song is uh, not about that. It's just kind of hanging out at a sandals resort with like, your Like we said, this song is about the Super Mario Sunshine mm-hmm. aesthetic of uh, this record, which is sort of Bob taking a, a sun-drenched vacation. He's he's learning to yearn and to love again in 
beautiful, sunny Mozambique. 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 Uh, and here also, just on the, the note, sun and skies, aqua blue. <laughs> on the note of uh, the sonic kind of landscape of desire, Mozambique introduces us to the second major component of the desire sound after the violin, uh, which is uh, the, the didgeridoo. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the backing vocals of uh, of Emmylou Harris. Um, who provides uh, a nice counterpoint to Bob. And who is aging gracefully and looks like an absolute fox. Does she? Still, yeah. I I didn't do any sort of Google image searching. I respect her, so I was only reading about her and not looking at images You didn't search Emmylou Harris hot on uh, Google? I did not. That that shows the values of the two hosts of this this podcast, just so everyone's aware. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I, I really like the kind of um, backing vocals of, uh, of her throughout, throughout this record and, a lot on, and on a lot of these songs. And it's sort of a callback to like that, that sound that he was playing with for a little while there on um, New Morning and Self-Portrait, right? With like the, the backing kind of choir of the right. women on. And, and it's something he'll end up sort of, uh, I agree with Clinton Halen on this one, uh, annoyingly over-relying on. Uh, later on in the late 70s, mid 80s, right. etc. Right. He uh, really feels... Is it et cetera? Or would you only say that if you're a total fucking asshole? I, I wouldn't even say it then, but... <laughs> if you're damned to hell, you say et cetera. Uh, anyway, uh, in this case, I think it works because Emmylou Harris is a great talent who is... Uh, you you don't it does she doesn't overwhelm Bob I think that's the key yeah whereas later on when he's got his sort of harem of singers um, literally and not uh, he uh, is a, sometimes drowned out or it, it feels uh, superfluous whereas here it's a nice uh, it's like a beautiful uh, sauce right uh, a, a nice condiment that really enhances what you've already got with that. Um, Salty uh, with the with Bob Dylan's voice. <laughs> I would even venture so far as to call it an herb. Not that, you know sauce. what? You're actually yeah, right. Just she, a nice she's herbaceous. Refresher. There you go, herbaceous. A nice little refresher on the top surface of the dish. Sort of, of the Bob Dylan. Sort song. of like a, a hot, hot sauce. Mm. That, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so Mozambique, um, you know, it's uh, it is a song on this record. That much is for sure. You can't deny that. And uh, and it is the song that comes immediately before uh, one more cup of coffee. So we were just talking about food, and this song is about a beverage. <laughs> it sure is. It's about. Um, apparently, this is one of the first songs that Dylan wrote in this sort of era, uh, right. in the the. Desire era. Apparently, the first thing he wanted and desired was one more cup of coffee. This, interestingly, is one of the two songs we, we mentioned this earlier when we were talking about our friend Jacques Levy. One of the two songs that is he's credited solely to Dylan himself. Um, right. He did this one pre-Jacques. Right. Um, and it's it's an okay song. <laughs> yeah, before I go, one more cup of coffee before I go to the valley below. Yes. So, to me, I think about it as some kind of uh, spooky valley, and it, it, it ties back to the sort of uh, imaginary landscape that you are sort of exploring on the uh, early track on, um, on ISIS, ISIS, where you've got sort of treasure hunters 
thinking about necklaces or whatever. He says, thinking about gold. This Tur- is another thinking about ma- turquoise and thinking about gold. This is actually we. This is gold. He talks about gold again. He does. And as we know from uh, songs like um, uh, Days of Forty Nine. Yep. Uh, and what's the other song where he talks about gold? What is the other song? After the uh, gold rush. Yes. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, Dylan uh, is another time where he talks about gold. But uh, anyway, uh, one more cup of coffee is is more about you know maybe he's drinking the coffee from a beautiful ornate golden cup, um, or maybe it's a very simple cup. Uh, anyway, this the, sounds to me like you're doing anti-Semitic tropes and because well, he's talking about gold, claiming that. The Jewish songwriter is very interested in the concept of gold. Uh, I'm gonna do you one better and do a uh, Judeo-Christian uh, trope, where he's he's talking about uh, the 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 cup of coffee as sort of a sacrament, like the Holy Grail. I see. Uh, in a very like the the penitent man sure. drinks from. Um, before he the valley below the valley of death like one more cup of coffee all right. but uh, all right. you know the the Christian prayer about the as I walk through the shadow of the valley, valley of death, death right. um, it's not lost on me uh, that uh, this there song a fire engine wow the fire engine is beautiful uh, in the dusk of uh, Prospect Park yeah it does look pretty nice it, it looks like... really good can you, t- can you snap a quick shot of that with your notebook I don't know if that's really going to come out too well but you got it. Uh, interestingly, uh, one more cup of coffee. I think uh, you know we mentioned a little earlier the, the sort of world music aspects of this record. Uh, there's a decidedly sort of Middle Eastern flavor well, to this song is, and is the, this the song? melody and the lyric. Which is the one where he he goes? That's that's this one. That's this one. Yeah, yeah he does the uh, this this very decidedly Middle Eastern vocal flourish. Which, uh, yeah, I don't know what you call that. I'm a, too much of a, a Philistine to know the the name for whatever type of, uh, I assume, uh, Middle Eastern singing style he's cribbing from right. there. But it goes like... <laughs> like if he were to extend that out, and it, it would be like maybe the dramatic high point of like a Bush era... Uh, thriller where it's slow motion and there's kind of like a sort of soundtrack while somebody while George Clooney is like staring at Sky Syriana is that a movie like that that is that is a movie like that does it have music like that I haven't uh, I guess I have seen it but not for a while I I would imagine so yes or American Sniper let's say yeah yeah sort of that like uh, boorish American uh Use of, of yeah, stereo, yeah, stereotypical uh, 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 Islamic sort of call to prayer, right, uh, right, uh, melody. But in this song, I, I, I feel like it's something that uh, at least for this moment, Bob was feeling was uh, very beautiful. That's why he sang it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there isn't a clear like uh, Islamic sort of touch touchstone. I think on this song or Wouldn't really anywhere else. Wouldn't that be a twist? Anywhere else on the record? If Bob became maybe a, a member of the nation of Islam. Well, I mean, ISIS. You know, maybe maybe he's been a sleeper agent this entire this entire time. This, this <laughs> right, has just right. Been propaganda for the Islamic State. Uh, it's working. It's a pretty good record. Solid seven. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Maybe in their next one, their next collab with Bob, they'll really bowl me over and I'll have to join. That's possible. Uh, interestingly, though, one more cup of coffee. One of one of the few songs on Desire that Bob has retained in his live arsenal throughout his career. Uh, so this is this has got a good 151 performances, uh, all the way up until April of 2009. His most recent performance. Well, that's a lot of cups of coffee. So he's clearly fond of the song, um, more so than he is for anything that uh, that has come before it. Um, which you know, yeah, that's his right. He write, he writes these songs, so it's it's his. His show. He, yeah. He can call the shots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's about, that's about it for one more cup of coffee. One thing that while we're still on the topic of Islam and um, rock music in the 1970s, <laughs> um, are you familiar with um, uh, Richard and, and Linda Thompson? Um, am I familiar with Richard and Linda Thompson? Uh, I don't know that I am. Or maybe I am, but I don't know that I am if I am. Um, they're uh, really a, a, a great uh, husband and wife. Uh, they were a, a great husband and wife duo, a British uh, rock duo. And uh, they had some incredible records uh, in, in the early to late 70s. And um, mid to late, maybe. But uh, there was a period where... Uh, I one, uh, Richard or one or both of them joined, uh, became uh, converts to Islam, and uh, did a whole record that's like an Islam-themed album. I was not aware of that. Have you listened to the Islam theme? I haven't, but uh, I've listened to some of their other ones. Um, I, I want to see the bright lights tonight. I think is what it's called. It's incredible. A real incredible. Uh, Rock music. Is this sort of in the um, uh, like the lineage of Cat Stevens uh, adopting? It, so, his... Well, it's sort of folky. Their music, anyway, is sort of folky, um, but also has some great, great like rock guitar performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I just thought I would mention that. That's something I sort of discovered recently that I was really blown away from, especially the live performance of uh, uh, Calvary Cross, I think it's called. It. Cavalry Cross? Well, Calvary would be uh, you know, a reference to... Calvary Cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's yeah. right. Uh, incredible guitar play. It's like really good. But uh, I digress big time, because where are we now? Well, we're now on to the next song on the record, and maybe you aren't digressing too far. This is Oh Sister. Uh, which, uh, if any song in Desire has sort of a preview of the direction that Bob is about to take, not immediately after this in 1977-78, but uh, thereafter in uh, the much-lamented Christian uh, era, uh, Oh Sister would be would be it. Uh, a, a, how so? How, how so is this a Christian song? Well, Sister is, I believe, a like a sister of the you know. Of well, you church. think he's talking to a nun? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, I can I can pull up if you give me a moment um, uh, the O oh Sister lyric. Um, I'll pull it up on your uh, scroll that you have there, your your papyrus scroll that I see you unfurling. Yes, uh, exactly. Not my iPhone. No. Um, we uh, yeah. O oh Sister, when I come to lie in your arms, you should not treat me like a stranger. Our Father, capital F, Father. Oh. There's the key would not like the way that you act and you must realize the danger. 
Um, so is this about a sort of uh, forbidden romance between a uh, nun and a layman? I can't. I, I, I don't. I don't know to be to be certain, uh, because uh, I know on the I've been listening to the uh, basement tapes or not basement tapes the bootleg sessions uh, volume five bootleg recently. series bootleg series excuse me uh, bootleg series volume five uh, which is the the Rolling Thunder um, you know uh, live concert recordings. Um, and Oh Sister is one of the songs that appears on there and immediately before the song plays someone in the audience shouts play a play a protest song and Bob says okay I, I got a protest song for you weird and then he launches into Oh Sister which doesn't come to my mind uh, initially as a protest song well this is a protest against um, against celibacy this right. is a song about getting a nun to this is very similar to um, to uh Billy Joel's song "Only the Good Die Young." Uh, in what way? It's about uh, trying to corrupt a religious youth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't know if that's what this song's about at all. But shame on Billy Joel. <coughs> you can hear us becoming infected with COVID. Yeah, Live. just right now. Um, yeah. So, oh, sister. Another sort of atypical song on the record, I think. Yeah, it was originally called Oh Baby. <laughs> um, sort of... Uh, no, I'm not going to bother making the joke. Uh, <laughs> shorter song. Uh, just a few a few short, quick little verses, right? Uh, we don't have a big, uh, a big epic lyric to relate here, and we aren't set in some sort of mystical story-like uh, realm like we were in One More Cup of Coffee, for instance. Um, but you also don't know when this song takes place. It could take place at any point in time. There's I guess no, that's true. Th- th- it has that sort of um, timeless uh, archetypal quality. Uh, you know, oh sister, father. These are these are kind of um, bigger ideas couched in common language or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, is, is this? What's a, a lyric in this that gives it? Is memorable to you? Do you have any that sort of mm. spring to mind? Because I, I guess, without listening to it right now, it, it falls into the trap that some of the later tracks on this record have. I think it's more about me. the delivery than the lyric necessarily. But like, uh, so here's one that definitely does uh, benefit from the delivery. We grew up together from the cradle to the grave. We died and were reborn, and then mysteriously saved. See, that is what made me think it wasn't uh, about. Uh, and non because it, it sounded like it, to me it was like an, about an actual sister but maybe he's talking about uh, growing up together in, in the world or in a larger I guess that's sense. possible who knows yeah maybe 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 he's being a being a classic minx as we know he he likes to be a sphinx and or minx and um Sphinx the Riddler. Yes. <laughs> sort of uh, offering a double entendre. Uh, and, and maybe the sister is a religious sister and that is reinforced with the uh, the Christian imagery in the song. But then maybe the sister is also just a sister. He doesn't have a sister, right? He's just got a brother. I, I think he only has a brother. I don't, I don't think Bob has a sister. No. Sisterless Man. Good name for a, for an album. Yeah, maybe not a whole album like that. <laughs> the man who didn't have a sister. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that that brings us to the close of side one for Desire. Um, 
definitely sort of a... Uh, side one for me starts off very strong with Hurricane and then starts to taper a little as we go on. Isis, I think, is, is a very interesting lyric, but uh, recording less so. Uh, and then Mozambique, a bit more of a trifle. Mozambique. Mozambique. I don't think of Mozambique as a as a trifle, as he put it. I think of it as being a, a truffle. I think of it as being fine and rare because it's about a special place uh, and a place that I uh, want to visit uh, just because of the song. And it's it's short and sweet. You just you know you finish it up with one one bite in your one bite in your mouth. Right. Um, like you would with a five hundred dollar truffle. Truffle. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Um, but we're about to move on to side two on this record, which definitely is a very interesting collection of songs. As the sun sets in uh, Prospect Park, and it's becoming very dark. Yes, it will. It will quickly become challenging to read the words that I've written on this piece of paper. So we're gonna have to fly free. But I hope you join us next time, uh, where uh, we'll we'll take off uh, where we left off, just like the the dragonflies that I can see actually just above our heads right now. No. Um, and bats. Are those bats? Those are bats, yeah. All right, well. Uh, but this has been uh, Jokerman Reborn, Jokerman Returns, Jokerman Live, a really special episode of Jokerman, even if the album is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's been pretty kind of special, but not that special. Yeah. Depends on your, your mental state. It actually does depend on your mental state. We'll see you next time. Jokerman. <laughs> Come on, water. Yes, I'm